Hey everyone, just a quick word before we begin. The Etc. podcast is a production of the Regent College Student Association, but it is not directly endorsed or affiliated with Regent College. Similarly, the views expressed on Etc. the podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Etc. or the Regent College Student Association. With that being said, let me thank you for tuning in to today's episode, and let's get on to the show. the podcast. My name is Dryden. My name is Abigail. And with us today, we have uh, Regent Professor Dr. George Guthrie. Thank you so much for being with us today, George. It is great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. George, we usually spend the first uh, little half of the episode here just allowing our guests to share kind of their personal story. So why don't you take the next uh, little chunk of time and just share with us uh, where you come from, how you ended up at Regent, and how you ended up in the world of academic biblical studies. To sure. Um, actually, my story starts uh, a bit before I was I was born, <laughs> um, as stories do, you know. Uh, but basically, what happened was my mom uh, had had three miscarriages before she had me, and uh, the doctors were doubtful whether she was actually going to be able to have a child. And so they loaded her up on drugs. This is late 1950s, and. Um, they kind of loaded her up on drugs that would help her carry me to term. And yet I was born 10 weeks early in 1959 and uh, was put um, in an incubator. And uh, at that point, they, the doctors told my grandma not to um, expect me to live. I had about a one in 10 chance of living. I weighed three and a half pounds, believe it or not, and had one lung working. And, um, and so my mom, who was a believer, but she wasn't like, you know, um, a person you would tag as just this super amazing committed Christian. Uh, she was, she was a normal, just a normal, uh, Christian lady who went to church regularly. She had been very influenced by my dad when they got married, um, who was a regular churchgoer. But she went out on the front porch of our house, and she cried out to God. And she said, God, if you will just let him live, you can have him. And, um, and so when I was born, uh, I did make it through the incubator uh, phase there. And, um, and my dad, when he brought me home, I fit in the palm of his hand. I was so small. He said I looked like a little rat. you know. So none of this what a beautiful baby stuff. <laughs> It took me about eight months to catch up with where my brother, uh, who was right under me, was when he was born. So I, was, I weighed three and a half pounds. My brother under me weighed nine pounds. The brother after him weighed uh, 11 pounds. And so my mom said, that's it. I'm not having another child. I don't want to have a 14-pound girl. You know. Um, so uh, I was 
you know, born into the family, firstborn son. And, and honestly, my earliest memories were of being interested in the things of the Lord. And my parents took a big red uh, story uh, book Bible. And I'm seriously, one of my earliest memories is that big Bible sitting out in the middle of the floor and having it open up. And I can still see the picture of David and Goliath in that story Bible. And so I, um, you know, I did things like when I was six, I wrote a poem that was published in my grandmother. My grandmother was an editor of a newspaper up in Western Kentucky. So we, we lived in Western Tennessee. Um, and if you think my, my accent is strongly Southern, you should hear my brothers and their families talk. They've never, they've never moved or been out of the area very much. Um, and mine's been blunted by different things, believe it or not. Um, but my grandma was, uh, an editor of, of, uh, a paper up in Western Tennessee or for like a column interest column thing. And so she published a poem for me, but I came, I came to Christ at a very young age. I was about two weeks before I turned seven years of age, and um, my dad had talked to me. Our pastor came over and just kind of led me through praying the sinner's prayer, and I was uh, baptized a while after that. And you know, it was very, um, very, very much a rudimentary understanding of things. But as I look back on on my life, I was always very interested in. Um, what was going on at church and and, and that kind of thing. Uh, high school was a bit more of a time of turmoil, but when I got uh, into my third year, I, I was an athlete. I played football, basketball, and baseball, so I was the quarterback of the of the football team for three years. Our first year, we were third in the state, um, and then we lost all of our line and most of the other players. There were only three of us left who had started, and the next two years were... Uh, a growth period, you know, in terms of uh, just going through a pretty pretty challenging time. Um, but I also, when I was a junior uh, in high school, got very very serious about my faith. And there was a good friend of mine who had gone off to university. He he had been uh, Hellion, you know, when when he he was two years older than me. He was on the line of that championship team and had gone off to play college football. But he had really, his life had completely changed and turned around when he was in university. And he came back, and I was one of the only people who was kind of being uh, public with my faith. And so we connected, and we started going around and and, uh, playing our guitars and singing wherever we had the chance to do it, in jails and, you know, and uh, even like in the kitchen of a restaurant or whatever, you know, we we were radical and... Uh, went around and and did that, and it was kind of the the in some ways the tail end, a little bit, a little bit beyond the tail end of the Jesus movement, you know, which happened in the very late '60s, early '70s. Um, but that kind of started me off. I then went to uh, uh, Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, which was a Christian university um, in the area, and immediately started taking Greek. Uh, I had not really been that serious about academics <clears throat> when I was. Um, when I was in high school, I'd, I'd been maxed out with sports, and so it, I didn't focus. I mean, I made decent grades, but it wasn't that I, I knocked the top out of anything. But I got serious about it when I went to, to university, and um, I started taking Greek and loved it. And um, I can remember a turning point for me in terms of my interest in academics was I had a sense of calling to ministry from my freshman year in university. But my junior year, I was taking a class, and in that class, uh, the pre- 
prophet used Michael Green's book, Evangelism in the Early Church. Michael Green is a former professor uh, here at Regent College, guy from the UK, Anglican. And in that book, he had integrated kind of serious biblical studies academics with uh, an interest in helping the church and life of the church. And there is a junior in university. I walked up to my prof after the class, and I held up that book, and I said, I think this might be what I'm called to do. And I, I, it wasn't clear yet, but uh, I went on and I did an MDiv uh, at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and really wasn't clear yet. But I started having a sense that my calling might be uh, to be in a position where I could disciple leaders of a nation or, or nations through education. And so I, uh, during that period, kind of opened up to that. I never felt like I was going to be a full-time pastor. Uh, I always felt it was going to be something else. And so during that period, um, I became open to that. At the end of that time, uh, I was talking to that same friend who I had, who was also at the seminary. Um, But I was talking to him about what I might do PhD work in because I knew I needed to do PhD work. And he said, you ought to do New Testament. You love Greek and all that stuff. And it just, it was like a light went off. Um, you know, kind of the importance of having friends around you who know you and have, have a sense of, of the Spirit's work in your life. And um, so at that point, I um, kind of opened up to New Testament. And right at that time, I had the opportunity to have a full ride to go to Trinity Divinity School in Chicago to do a THM. And and that year was transformative in all kinds of ways because my profs were evangelical profs who were publishing broadly, and um, it gave me a better foundation in New Testament. And then I went back to do a PhD in New Testament at uh, Southwestern Seminary. Actually, at a very good time, we had there were over four thousand students at the seminary at that time. Uh, Southwestern's a very different place today for historical reasons, and I won't go into all of that. But um, but I was there when, for instance, E. Earl Ellis, who was a prominent internationally recognized New Testament scholar, was there, and I had other other very very good profs in New Testament. It was it was a foundational period for me. And in my first year of PhD work, I was substitute teaching a Greek class, and this beautiful girl was sitting on the front row, and I was I was twenty seven years of age. And, you know, every week my mom was calling from Tennessee and saying, have you met any nice girls this week down there in Texas? And I was like, no, mom, I haven't. And uh, I would go home, you know, to church uh, when I would travel back home, and the little old ladies in church would come up and say, both of your younger brothers are married. What is wrong with you? You know, that kind of thing. So uh, that's that's the real reason why I kept doing different degrees is I hadn't f- found a wife yet, you know. Um, but, no, I, I was substitute teaching this class, and and it, I'm not kidding. Uh, it, it was strange. The first day, there's 65 students in the class, and I sensed the presence of the Lord in that class. I know that sounds crazy, but I was teaching about Greek participles, and I'm and I'm actually sitting there teaching, and so I'm talking out loud. But you have you know how you have this kind of alternate consciousness going on, and um, and I'm I'm thinking, this is weird. I'm teaching about participles, and I feel like. You know, the Spirit is, is kind of here with me. But what was going on was she, Pat, was sitting on the front row, and 
she was immediately kind of attracted and kind of wanted you, you know i had hair at that time so uh <laughs> and um and she uh but but what she would do is she she would get up and pew, uh hit, take out uh leave the class so i didn't have a chance to meet her and and what was going on there was as she would say it today you know she always had tried to help god out with relationships she had been engaged the year before she came to the seminary and uh, she said, "She said, Lord, if if you want him to be interested in me, you're going to have to send him to me." And so she got up and she 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 would take off, but she did go ask. She asked some friends, "Do you know George Guthrie? Can, is he married? You know that kind of thing." And so uh, so one day after I, I substitute taught for a whole week, and then after that. I was walking across campus. She worked on the grounds crew, so she was weeding a flower bed, and I happened to be walking right by and stopped and talked to her for 30 seconds and walked away and thought, man, she is awesome. And she was also, she was at a time in her life where she was really walking with the Lord. She had these amazing girlfriends. They uh, they actually had, had the Beta No Data Club, uh, <laughs> where they said they weren't going to date, they weren't going after a husband or anything like that. Um, and and so I, you know, Pat got on my radar screen and I uh, started seeing her kind of appear on campus, you know, and uh, finally got up the courage to to go ask her if she would go have a cup of coffee. And, and our first date was on Valentine's Day in, uh, in, in 1987. Uh, and it just kind of fell that way. And, and, you know, it was the time, the only time that we could figure to get together because we were both busy was to go out for breakfast. And I didn't know she was going to have to get up like at three to get ready, you know, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> so, so we went to the Cactus Flower Cafe in Fort Worth, Texas, and our waitress was Johnny. And we sat there and we talked for two hours, and it was just like talking to an old friend, you know. So, uh, so we started getting getting to know each other. Within a month, I knew I was going to ask her to marry me, and she would say she knew within. 10 days or something, you know, that, that she, she, but she said, you know, uh, I may be wrong, but what happened was my parents came down in March and, uh, we went, we all went out to the Fort Worth street festival together. And when we came back and dropped Pat off at the dorm, I had already told my parents, I said, I'm, I think I'm going to ask this girl to marry me. And so we dropped Pat off at the girl's dorm. And, um, I said to my mom, well, what do you think? <laughs> And my mom said, uh, "What do I think? Why are you waiting till May to ask her to marry you?" You know, so they were they were immediately sold on Pat. Loved, just loved her, loved her, as as anyone who knows Pat would say. Of course, of course, of course they loved her. Uh, we got we got engaged in May, and got married in in December, all in 1987. Um, and I had never been in that serious of a relationship. I dated you know people, but I'd never been. Uh, in that serious relationship. But I think for both of us, we had had models of people we knew who had these wonderful Christian marriages. So we knew what we were looking for. And we both uh, kind of had a vision for what marriage and family life would be. And um, and so all that came together and we, we got married. I uh, finished my coursework. And in a North American context, you do two to three years of, of seminar work before you do dissertation. So I, I finished my coursework. And about that time, about 1990, um, we 
got a call from my university that I had graduated from. And uh, the president wanted me to come back and be on the faculty to teach New Testament biblical studies. He knew that that um, I had done well academically and also really had a heart for the church. And at that time, you know, the, the department, there were good good folks there, but they uh, it was not an evangelical department. And um, so I, I came back and uh, joined the faculty, and in, I think, three years, um, I was asked to be the chair of the department and then had a vision for how we would grow. And over the next 10 years, we would go from about 60 majors to about 230 majors there and became a, a, a college within the university um, about that time. and. Um, and yet, what happened was I, I was kind of poised to become the dean of the new uh, school. Or we, excuse me, we became the School of Theology and Missions, or School of Christian Studies first, and then it would transition. But um, that was within the broader university. And I was kind of poised to become the dean, but went on a research leave in Cambridge, England, and I think it was the first research leave union ever granted because they they were moving to a, a new approach to all of that. And um, and when I was there, I just just kind of was still just um, enlivened by the discovery of research and writing. I just loved it, and I was seeing all this stuff. And one morning, I was at my carol there on Selwyn Gardens. Um, at Tyndall House in Cambridge, England, and sat down at my desk, and I thought, what am I doing going deeper into administrivia when this is what I'm really wired to do? You know, I had been, I'd been a chair of a department for 10 years, um, but, but my strengths were leadership strengths and gifts, not administrative gifts. And so a good friend of mine was kind of the assistant to me in the, in the chair, but he was so gifted administratively, I could say, do you remember the meeting we had with so-and-so last year? And he'd walk over to the filing cabinet, pull it out, and just pull, it, pull out that meeting, you know, without even thinking about it. I would be digging in a box in a closet somewhere trying to find a piece of paper. Um, but so my gifts were, were not administrative gifts. And, and by God's grace at that point, I think it was a fork in the road. And one of the things I tell students is, you know, when you come to these forks in the road, it seems obvious, well, the next kind of step up the ladder is to do this. Stop and really, really think about how God's wired you, because you're going to be, you're going to thrive in life as you're living out of your giftedness and, and where you're not going against the grain of your giftedness, right? So I, um, I called the president of the university from England, and I said to, to David, what would you think? about me not doing the dean's position and just focusing on uh, research and writing. He said, you know what, if that's what you're, you're feeling called to do, I would completely support you in that. And so what they did is they put me in a named chair that I held until the time that I left. I actually taught fewer classes than I was teaching when I was the, the, the chairman of the department. And, uh, and that freed up space in my life so that in... Uh, around 2011, I entered into a biblical literacy initiative with Lifeway Publishers, where we did uh, kind of video uh, conferencing. Uh, really, it was there were there were video 
seminars that people could do in their churches. And by God's grace, we had over 50,000 people go through that basic training in how to read and study the Bible. And, um, and, and that would have never happened if I had been the dean of the school. I just wouldn't have had the space um, and the emotional energy and space to do that. So, so uh, by God's grace, my, my last season, which I guess lasted about, um, I guess that would have, would have been about seven years or so at, at Union, was um, you know, a wonderful period. But this is, how I, this is how I came to Regent. So, uh, so what happened was, in 2013, um, Pat and I were on another research leave in, in, back at Tyndall House in Cambridge. It's interesting. Tyndall House has been a very important place in our lives, and we've probably been there now six or seven times, uh, either short-term or for a longer research leave. But I was back at Tyndall House, and um, just we, we were just kind of falling into relationships with all the PhD families. Uh, Tyndall House is a research library, but it's surrounded by apartments or flats. And, um, and so there, there's a, a central garden and you have right there eight or nine families from all over the world who are, you know, the, one of the spouses is doing PhD work. In fact, Brittany Melton, who is going to be joining us in Old Testament next year, Brittany and Drew and their family lived right next door to me and Pat. Um, I can't remember if it was in 2013. I think it was. It might have been 2015 when we went back for another thing. But um, but we were there, and we were just just having all of these rich conversations about academics and marriage and parenting. Because what Tyndall House does is you you're doing your research in the library, and then twice a day you stop and have tea. So at 11 in the morning, or you go and have coffee at 11 in the morning. And you stand around for 20 to 30 minutes and you just talk with people in a common room. And then at about four in the afternoon, you do it again. And so those kind of uh, times in the common room, I would be talking to someone about textual criticism or about what I was researching. At that time, I was finishing my commentary on Second Corinthians or working on my commentary on Second Corinthians. And... Um, and so, you know, you'd be learning from each other, and then all of a sudden the conversation would shift from high-level academic biblical study stuff to, so how's it going? You know, have you guys been on a date together, or you just, you know, whatever. And so Pat and I left uh, that context in which we were walking across the garden picking up the Slovakian's baby, you know, to walk around the garden. Uh, and we came back to Union, and uh, at that point we had been at Union for 20 two years or something like that. And our, the ground had shifted under our feet, and we both knew it, and we, we both felt like maybe we need to open up to at least moving in close to the university where students can just walk across the street to our home or whatever. But maybe we need to open up to being in a context where we're, we're walking with and living in the midst of graduate students and their families. And that period lasted for three years. I did not look for jobs. I did not go out and try to find out where there were positions. In fact, uh, during that period, I heard that uh, there were some challenges going on at Regent, 
because of kind of financial concerns. I was I was in a PhD program with Phil Long, who used to teach Old Testament here, and he and I were good friends, and so um, we were um, going out and teaching in this PhD program together in California periodically. And uh, so I so at that time I thought, well, Regent College is off the list, even though it's one of the main places I would ever want to go. It sounds like it's probably not a not a place I need to consider. And so that that period of three years was kind of kind of hard because it was a period of feeling like I was in between. I was very fulfilled in what we were doing. We we had a thing. I think the last seven years we were at Union called Good Thursday. And uh, what Good Thursday was is every other week we had a big home in the country that Pat and I had designed, and every other week we had a big pot of soup or stew on, and anybody who wanted to could just come and and have a meal. Now they had to sign up, you know. Couldn't we couldn't have? Uh, and sometimes we had twenty five, and sometimes we had nine, you know, or something. But we did that for the last seven years uh, during normal term times, and. Um, and so it was a productive time of ministry, but I, I, I got to the point teaching undergrads where I felt like what I'm doing I can do in my sleep, and yet I'm not, I'm not finished growing myself. There are things I want to be pushed in and grow in. And so in 2016, uh, I went through a very hard summer because my back went out on me, and uh, it was just a tough summer. But then as we emerged into the fall, there was, um, I, I won't go into details, but just through what a couple of different people shared with me about how they were praying for me, uh, there was this kind of light that suddenly came on the scene. And then when Pat and I went down to San Antonio, Texas, I think it was, for a Society of Biblical Literature meeting, and I happened to sit down next to Phil Long at a um, at a publisher's breakfast, so publishers put on breakfast for their authors, and Phil and I ended up sitting next to each other. And his brother-in-law, Drew Trotter, had actually said, you need to talk to Phil because I've heard that Rick Watts is going to be leaving Regent. And, uh, and I, I think Phil would want to talk to you. So I sat down next to him, and Phil turned to me and said, uh, did you know that Rick's leaving Regent? And I, I, I said, no, I, did, I didn't. I didn't know that. Um, he said, you wouldn't be open to the position, would you? And I said, well, let me tell you what's going on. And so I told him about the thing. They had already, my understanding was that they had already quit uh, receiving applications at that point. And, um, but Phil called Jeff Greenman, and Jeff and I had about an hour-long conversation that followed by uh, about an hour-long conversation with Paul Spilsbury. Uh, then I was interviewed in January, I think it was, by the search committee, and then that led to us coming out for a for a week long uh, interview process here. And, and here's a, here's a cool story just about that, just in terms of God guiding the process, if you will. Um, the time back in 2013 when we had come home from England, we put our house on the market for eight months, and there was basically no interest. And and. Then when we came for the interview, the day before we left to come up here to interview, uh, my son was standing in church, and there was a couple behind him, John and Carla Putt, and, um, and Carla just turned to Joshua, our son, and said, Joshua, I think that John and I might want to buy your parents' house. Do you think they would be open to that? And Joshua said, 
I think they might be. Um, he said, I'll tell my dad. He'll give you a call. So we got out here, and I called John from right over here at Cary, where we were staying. And I said, hey, we're out of town, but we'll be back this weekend. Why don't you and Carl come out on Saturday, and you can take a look, and we're open, you know. So we had a wonderful week here, just had a tremendous peace, which is amazing. Because as an academic, when you come into a place that doesn't know you, and you have a lot of really, really smart people in the room, and I had such respect for the colleagues here, and it, it's, it, it can be very intimidating because people can ask you anything. And all of us are laymen in a whole bunch of stuff, right? Uh, so, but God's peace, and we had a great experience. Um, and we got back, and on that Saturday, John and Carla came out. The first thing that happened is Carla walked in the house and said, Oh, I love this. I love this. And they ended up offering us top dollar for our house. John was a realtor, and so we, we didn't pay a realtor's fee. And he knew what the house was worth, and he offered us top dollar for the house. It was one of the easiest things we've ever experienced. And we, so we were able to sell our house. And then there's a great story also how we got to our place here on campus, too, but I won't go into that. So, um, so you had asked about how, how I got into an interest in academic work. It was basically that gradual uh, opening up to a vision that academic life and the ministry of discipling leaders could be profoundly integrated. In fact, my full ride to Trinity Divinity School for my THM was given by an organization that had that specific vision. It was, it was a, an organization that wanted to help professors who had a vision for academics, not as an end in itself, but as, as a, a dynamic context of ministry through which you would try to, try to help shape people's life uh, in discipleship. We're thankful that you made your way here, George. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to be here. Um, I'm learning, you know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a learning process, um, but I'm really thankful to have our community here. Um, it's, a, it's a great place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. Like Abigail said, we're thankful to have you. Um, this is probably a good time to, to transition into uh, talking about the projects that you've undertaken since coming to Regent. Yeah. Um, we have here a copy of your, of your most recent book, uh, reading the Bible better. Um, what I'm, I'm wondering, what was the motivation for, for that? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of my work has been, uh, more on the side of like commentaries and things, which would be normal for a new Testament scholar to do. My second Corinthians volume with the Baker exegetical series came out in 2015. Um, I have a, a, Commentary on Philippians that's supposed to release this summer uh, in the Zondervan exegetical commentary series, and um, and yet the other side of my publishing life, uh, kind of, if you go back to that biblical literacy initiative I did, uh, we had a chronological Bible and a reader's guide to the Bible and and a trade book on how to how to read the Bible, which was um, kind of a step up from this one. So so that book. It's called Read the Bible for Life. It was 16 chapters, and it uh, eight of those chapters were built around how to read the different genre. And I, I interviewed people like Bruce Waltke, 
on how to read the narratives of the Old Testament. And and that's one of my favorite interviews that I, I did in that whole series was with Bruce. Bruce, sitting down with Bruce, like talking to a Jewish grandfather, you know, who's just exuding wit, uh, wisdom, you know. So, uh, so I had those books because I became very, very burdened for um, the increasing biblical illiteracy I saw from my university students over a 20-year period. And we got, we went from, when I started teaching university, my students didn't know Amos 5, you know, let justice roll down. Um, when I got to the end of my teaching at the university, they, did, they didn't know Mark 5. So I had students doing projects on the woman with the flow of blood and, you know, Jairus' daughter. And one student just burst out in class one day. I've never seen this before. You know, I, you know that kind of thing. Because what, what happened over that period of time in the church is that uh, it became, the church became much more fragmented in its educational process. It used to be, if you go back 30 or 40 years ago, churches cycled through books of the Bible together as a church so that every three years a church would cycle through the whole of Scripture. And what happened about 20, 25 years ago is churches started shifting to a varied curriculum approach where you might have one Sunday school class doing finances and another Sunday school class doing marriage and another Sunday school class doing Ruth and another, you know, and so you you can have people who are in the church for a couple of decades and have never been exposed to large swaths of scripture, you know. So so I became very very burdened and concerned about that and went to Lifeway Publishers. One of my friends was like executive to the you know like right hand person to the president, big organization, but sat down with them and we started actually thinking let's do a podcast, but then as as it continued it ended up being four different books and you know a podcast and you know a video curriculum and all this kind of thing so uh so that side the motivation that this little book is the latest iteration of um was because i really um if basically all that i do in biblical studies i want to have an effect on building up the church and uh, I I do academic work, but even my most technical academic work that's published in a uh, scholarly journal, like I have had an article a couple of years ago come out in New Testament Studies, which is the top, you know, one of the top New, New Testament journals in the world, if not the top. And uh, yet, in my mind, I want to do that because I want to help schol- other scholars who are writing the commentaries and then help pastors. Think about this passage better, right? So, um, so this little book specifically, what happened was uh, it's been on the on the kind of uh, to do list now for for a number of years because I had other projects that were in the queue before it, uh, and we were we were actually going to do a book that was more oriented to the story of scripture, but. When it came around that I was ready to start writing this book, the uh, the kind of the uh, acquisitions editor at B and H Publishers said, "Well, here's what I really want you to do." And he said, "We've got this new series, uh, and in that series, what we're trying to do is to do books that churches can buy whole boxes of and just hand out to their people as good foundational practices and ways of thinking." And so, so this is part of a fairly new series, I think. 
um, and they wanted to price it at a point where um, a church could buy a whole box of them. And and I've had a number of pastors already contact me and say, hey, I, you know, I bought thirty of these to hand out to our leadership team, or you know, that kind of thing. So uh, so this book, like if you think of Fee and Stewart's book, um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, it's awesome, still, you know, wonderful. It would be a couple of shelves up from my Read the Bible for Life book. So Fee and Stewart is kind of going through all of, all of the different genre of the Bible in more in depth. You have 15 principles on how to read Acts, you know, that kind of thing. Read the Bible for Life would be a couple of steps down from that. It's going to have chapters also on how to read the Bible with the family, how to read the Bible um, for lament, you know, stuff like that. This book is is down on the bottom shelf. It's it's something that's meant to be handed to a person who's never thought about how to read the Bible before. It's meant to be very introductory. But I also tried to write it in a way that was beautiful. You know, would have illustrations that would kind of speak to where people were, and um, and yet very practical. So the book also lays out uh, here, okay, here, let's think about the top three tools that you ought to get. If you're just learn, learning to read the Bible, uh, you need to consider investing in a study Bible, for instance. Um, think about getting a Bible dictionary, those kind of things. So it was, it was an attempt to help people think about why we need to read the Bible intelligently, but also intelligently in a way that's that's really integrated with the heart from the beginning. Because what I say in the book in the first main chapter is on the heart, that your most important tool for Bible reading is your heart. Because if your heart's not in the right place, then you're never going to read the Bible effectively. Because uh, reading is, is is a process of reception. And, um, and so that's that's really what that little book's trying to do. Yeah. Mm. You've already touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering what do you see as as the biggest obstacles to to biblical literacy in the church today? What are some of yeah. the biggest abuses or mistakes? Yeah, I think um you know, here's an here's an interesting angle. When I started out, I was so burdened about the biblical literacy problem that my message in that initial phases of the biblical literacy initiative we did was basically, man, we stink at Bible literacy, don't we, in the church? You know, it was kind of like, oh, we're doing this wrong. You know, think about it. we only have sixteen percent of people read the Bible on a daily basis, and you know that kind of thing. And uh, it was it was not that bad, but I mean, it was you, you understand it was from the angle of saying we've got a problem here, we need to address it. What I came to conviction about is that the the the, the really the underlying motivation is needs to be relational. That, look, this is about the fact that we have the opportunity to hear from the God of the universe who has spoken into the world and wants a relationship with us. And that's a, that's a foundational, life-shaping thought. You know? and, I, and I believe this with all my heart, that if God has really spoken into the world, if revelation's a real thing, then there is nothing more important that you and I can do on a daily basis than to hear from God. Nothing. There's no, no, nothing that's more orienting to life. And, and like it or not, this is the only connection we have. The scripture is the only connection we have with the witness of Jesus in the early church and the foundation of, of the prophets and the, the Old Testament scripture, right? 
So, um, so we have a situation where here's an opportunity. The, the biggest challenges, I would say, are twofold. We live in a frenetic culture in which we're all worn out because our lives are busy. We live in a culture, this would be threefold, I guess. We live in a culture that is increasingly not textually oriented. We're not oriented to reading text. Now, we have to stop and put that in perspective because neither was the early church. So if you think about the early church, you probably had a fairly low literacy rate, although I think sometimes we may have you know, exaggerated how low that literacy rate was. But still, you had many people in the church who could not read. They were dependent on an oral hearing of the things that were read up front. And, but they also probably had memories that were much better trained than ours are to remember the things that they were listening to. And that was the only quote entertainment that they had to you know was was this was what this was their time of the week to go and get you know stimulated by what they were hearing um we live in a little bit different world than that today so that's part of part of the challenge the other thing in terms of the church itself is um it is not usual for churches to offer any kind of ongoing training in how to read the bible and the thing that I've said to pastors uh, through the years is I said, look, you hold this book up and you say to your people, this is the basis for everything we do in the church. This is the basis for everything in your life. You need to read it. And good luck with Leviticus. I hope that goes well for you. You know, um, So you have this situation where uh, we say this is what you need to do, and yet with this ancient, complex body of literature, we don't train people in how to engage it. Now, that's changing. Um, I think there's an appetite for that training. Uh, but, but you know, if there are any pastors listening, I would say, look, what are you doing rhythmically in your church so that people are being trained to read and engage the Bible well? And, um, and so I, I think that that's one of the biggest things that we're up against. I, when we were doing the Biblical Literacy Initiative, we had pastors who— um, you know, we're like, okay, give me something quick and snappy. Can we do this in six weeks? And we'll make it one of the 15 classes we're offering. And then you had other churches where the pastor said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to shut down everything else we're doing for the next year. And we're going to train people. And then we're all going to read through the Bible together. And I'm going to preach from the portion that we're reading each week on the following Sunday. I'm going to preach on a passage from that section. And we're going we're gonna to build everything that we're doing around this. And, and those were the churches where it was very high impact because the pastor was also standing up and saying, let me just share with you how I experienced the reading this week. You know, so there's kind of a modeling going on and that type of thing. So, so one, of the, one of the needs is to have a vision that is uh, integrated into the life of the church that, in a way that's, that it's doable. My, my home church, actually, just for the last six weeks or so, have been working through this little book. And um, so my brother and my niece and my mom, you know, we're all, all there. And of course, my brother wrote me to point out a couple of typos in the book. Uh, <laughs> but at least he's reading it, you know. So, um, no, but, but seriously, you know, so they, they, were just, they just read a chapter a week and then talked about it. You know, they had about 100 people going through the book. So that's awesome. Yeah. So what what would you say to uh, region students like us who uh, are preparing to go out into ministry in various different contexts? 
uh, how do we foster a wise engagement with the Bible um, in whichever, whether it's church or parachurch, whatever the context is? Well, uh, in terms of an, of an orientation, the first thing I would say is um, the well of your own ingenuity and your resources is a very shallow well for any of us. And I know people who are very gifted people in the world, and they can run for a long time on their giftedness and their speaking ability and all these kind of things. But if you, if you have a life that is deeply oriented to the Scriptures, you know, where you have a process of exegesis and study and your own rhythmic reading, you know, where, where there's a rhythm of engaging Scripture in your own life. I think what one of the uh, stati- amazing statistics is that over the last 40 years, there have been several surveys done of speak- people's spiritual lives around the world, not just in North America, but around the world. And uh, consistently in those surveys, the number one indicator of whether or not a person's thriving spiritually is whether or not they read the Bible on a daily basis. And nothing else comes close, not, not attending church, but reading the Bible on a daily basis. And I think the reason that is is because when we have a rhythm of kind of opening up our lives very rhythmically, um, I'm doing that this year. I'm, I'm using um, uh, the chronological day-by-day um, Bible that I helped Lifeway develop, or B&H, and, um, and I used, I'm using that. Again, I didn't use it last year, but I'm using it again this year because there's something about knowing what I'm doing. And in that Bible specifically, I have a little paragraph every morning that kind of orients the reader to how to read the portion for that day, to say, here's where we are in the story. You remember when we're reading narrative, one of the main principles is God's always the hero of the story. So in this story of David and Goliath today, how is God the hero of this story? Not David, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I read my little portion. Of course, I've long forgotten what I said I should do, you know, when I'm reading, but I do that every morning. So, um, so what I would say is if you establish um, a rhythmic approach to opening your heart and your life to the Bible on a daily basis, it's not legalistic. It's, it's about relationship. Um, and then you have, you have the ability to go deeper and study it. If you're going to be a person who's teaching, then you need to do that well. And that doesn't mean you need to be an academic or a scholar in, in one sense. But in another sense, we have amazing tools out there in the world that any person can learn to study the Scriptures well and do word studies and think about context and think about background. I mean, for instance, in the last 20 years, we've had um, backgrounds commentaries come on that all they do is they deal with cultural and historical background. And they're so helpful, Yeah, you know? Uh, so what I would say to Regent students is establish patterns in your life that give space to going deeper in Scripture because what's going to happen is that's also going to minister to you and feed you over time. It's always going to be a fight because you're always going to have things just, you know, knocking on the door saying you got to get out into the day right but uh and and i i struggle with that myself and, and frankly there's some days i'll get up and i have a meeting on zoom from six this past week uh on tuesday i think it was i i'm on the board of a of an international organization that ministers to house church pastors in asia and we had our meeting and it was six to eight a.m pacific time well, that day, I didn't have my normal you know, time with the Lord, 
But, you know, I just picked up the next day and went on. So it doesn't have to be um, a legalistic kind of thing. You, but, but you want that deep rhythm where it becomes something that you long for, just like you have hunger pangs before it's time to eat lunch. You know, that you're, you're kind of, you kind of miss it. Um, so I would say establish rhythms in your life that allow you to draw from Scripture um, as a, a, a large part of what you're doing in ministry. And, and even if you're not, you don't have the gift of teaching, you're not a teaching or preaching pastor, you still need that source in your life to speak wisdom to people, right? Uh, if you're counseling people, if you're in a parachurch ministry where you're just walking with students, I mean, there are all kinds of things that, that we all need to be grounded in, in that place. And I, I, I think, um, you know, that'd be my basic answer, is, is, is when you look at Scripture broadly, the people of God are word people, and they're prayer people, and they're spirit people, and they're mission people. And, and that, those are not optional things. And that was embodied in different ages of the church in different ways. But the question is, in our age, with the tools we have, how, how can it be embodied today? Yeah. 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 No, that's good. Um, before we wrap up, George, I'm wondering if you might take a minute just to plug the summer course that you have coming up. Yeah. Uh, I understand you have a course coming up on the Book of Philippians. I do. So I do. why is the Book of Philippians valuable, and why should everyone who listens to this podcast sign up? To yeah, the class? Book of Philippians <laughs> is awesome. I mean, it, it just is. Um, you know, you have so many passages there. Uh, for instance, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul, Paul's actually doing a play on words there. With uh, There was a, uh, a saying in the world at that time, and um, it, it was zain Christos, which basically meant life is good. And he changes it to to zain Christos, life is Christ. Yeah. And uh, so you have those, pa- you know, those passages like that, and then in chapter 3, uh, with with Paul talking about um, running the race, you know, and and forgetting what lies behind, reaching for what what's ahead. I mean, you've just got these. You have these amazing things. Not even to mention the Christ hymn in chapter two, verses six through eleven. You know, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And there's some just astoundingly awesome things going on with the structure of that and the Old Testament scriptures behind that. So. Um, you know, I just think Philippians is amazing. I, my commentary is not going to be out yet. It's going to come out this summer. So what I'm going to do in the class, we only have five days and three hours a day. So this is a, you know, a short course, if you will. So what I'm going to try to do is take a section at a time, and we won't be able to go exegetically verse by verse, but what I'm going to do is dive down into key issues in each section and then talk about the implication for the church. So in our first, uh, I think in our first day, we get through verse 11, and there you have the, the wonderful prayer in verses 9 through 11, chapter 1, uh, which just, just is rich and amazing and kind of almost gives a framework for, for um, kind of commitments in life that then give a foundation for how you, you live into the mission that you have in the world in unity. One of the, and here, this is the last thing I'll say about the plug. Uh, one of the greatest things we're struggling with in the modern church is unity. And, and Philippians was written for Paul to address a challenge of a, of a wonderful 
church. Paul loved the Philippians. They loved him. He had a great relationship with them. But he's concerned about them because he's had a relational, there's been a relational breakdown in the church that is hurting the church between uh, two women who were leaders in the church, Euodia and Syntyche. And Paul says, these are women who have been partners with me in, in ministry. And yet, um, obviously, the way he lays it out, they're, they're having a hard time getting it together. So we need, we need to think, what are the theological foundations for unity mm. in the church? And, and what are kind of non-negotiables? You, you know, what are we not going to compromise to have that unity? And then, but then especially, especially, how do we gather around certain principles like putting the other the other's interests before our own, those kind of things as, as a basis, and then following great exemplars of self-sacrificial leadership, Christ, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, Paul. They're in the center of the book. Um, and so we've got plenty to talk about yeah. so over, we'll, those, over you, those five days. Uh, <laughs> would, yeah. would you say, George, that it's going to be more of like an applicational approach then? It's, or Yeah, it's gonna, it's, it is going to really try to help people understand the, uh, the cultural backdrop because that's super important to what the Philippians were facing. Uh, and we are going to do some exegesis. But what I'm, what I'm really leaning toward is having it kind of grounded there but not get lost in the weeds because we can't really, you know, fully go verse by verse exegesis. We're going to have to kind of dive down into kind of key issues. And then we will culminate every section with talking about, okay, let's, let's talk about the implications of this for how we think about our lives, the lives in our community. We'll do that every day. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of do that section at a time. Um, but yes, I'm not, it's not applicational oriented. Like that's the main point of the course. It's going to be very integrated, but it's going to be done with a way that it's not, the foot forward is not going to be, Hey, let's hit a high level of academic orientation here. It's going to be, let's build on what we learn from good academics, but let's do it in a way that, that this is immediately applicable to our lives and our churches. Yeah, no, that's, that'll be cool. Well, George, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. It's we been, been a lot of fun, yeah, guys. We really I appreciate really it. really enjoy uh, getting the chance to just, uh, you know, just, just play a part in the, in the region community and, yeah. and uh, share my life with you a little bit. Yeah, no, it's been great. Thank you so much, George.